Well, I hope you've all been enjoying our study of the book of Hebrews together as a church. I know personally I've been enjoying reflecting on the great theme that we've had going on it of, of Jesus being greater. So far we've had a focus on Jesus being greater than the angels. Uh, then that was followed up by the focus of Jesus being greater than the central Old Testament figure of Moses. And this week we're going to look at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 of Hebrews, and have a focus on Jesus being our great high priest. So before we work through the idea of Jesus being our great high priest, why don't we just focus our minds and our hearts by praying to God and asking that he will be with us as we work through his word together. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is greater. Lord, he's the great and perfect high priest. And as we reflect on that idea this morning, we pray that your spirit will be present, that it will speak to our hearts, and it will remind us again about um, the depths of that truth and what it means for us here and now. We pray this in your name and look forward to your presence and your spirit um, being at work. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those who uh, might be tuning in through the live stream and are relatively new to keeping updated with Canterbury or just may not have had the chance to meet me yet, my name is Paul Lewis and I, I wear a few hats around here at Canterbury. But more importantly, I have a wife, Melody, and two young, beautiful boys who are six and eight years old. One thing I love to do is playing with my two kids. And I love playing sport with my two kids because you can quite easily create an impression that you're amazing at whatever sport that you're playing with them. One of the sports that I was trying to impress them with recently was skateboarding. Now, I did skateboard myself back in the prime of my primary school years and I figured surely not much has changed since then. My abilities must still be as strong as they ever were. And so I would cruise around on whatever patch of concrete I could find with them and try to create this impression of me being this incredible skateboarder. But the issue with having an image of being amazing at something is that when you're not amazing at something, that image can very easily unravel. See, the issue was when you are around other kids who actually can skateboard, you often get questions like, hey, Dad, why don't you give that a go? And one day, in the effort of, of keeping up with the abilities of those around me, I soon found myself with a skateboard flying out from underneath me, lying on my back on the concrete with what I would find out to be a broken arm. The images we create for ourselves can easily be uncovered and leave us feeling somewhat exposed for who we really are. Now, at the end of last week's passage, when we worked our way through Hebrews, th Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4, we were left with this notion of being uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give account, as it says in Hebrews 4.13. The word of God exposes us for who we really are. It penetrates and it judges our innermost thoughts and emotions and attitudes. There's simply nowhere to hide and any false images or impressions we try to give to others or we try to give to God simply will not hold up for they will always be exposed by God and his word. But yet, despite God knowing exactly who we really are, in this week's passage, we're told that we can still approach his throne of grace with confidence. 
Now, you might say, well, how can that be? If all of my sinfulness and shortcomings are on full display before a holy God, how is it that I can approach God's presence with confidence? And the answer is, well, it's through Jesus, our great high priest. So we're going to take some time to reflect on that idea of Jesus being our great high priest. And we're going to do that by looking at the last few verses of chapter 4, verse 14 to 16, where we're going to focus on the attributes of Jesus, our high priest. And then the first 10 verses of chapter 5, where we're going to look at the role of Jesus, our high priest. And as we look at both the attributes and the role of Jesus, our high priest, my prayer is that it will help us to move from feeling uncovered and exposed before God to instead being able to approach him and engage with him with confidence because of the saving work of Jesus on the cross. So with that scene being set, let's get straight into it. Now, our first section in Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, gives us two main attributes of Jesus, our high priest. And each of those attributes is followed by an instruction. Now, the first of those attributes is in Hebrews 4, verse 14. It says, Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, the attribute here is that Jesus has ascended into heaven. He was not left crucified on the cross, but God raised him to life again, and he ascended into the very presence of God, where he is today interceding on our behalf. Even though we are uncovered and laid bare before God, we have a high priest who has direct access to him, And as it says in Hebrews 1, sits down at the right hand of the Father and he's actively interceding on our behalf. The fact that Jesus has ascended into heaven testifies to his acceptance before God and the perfection of his work on the cross. His work was completed and perfected on the cross and so he he was accepted into the presence of God. Of God, and he sat down at his right hand as a demonstration of the completion of what was achieved on the cross. Hence, his words on that cross it is finished. And as it says in Hebrews 5, verse 9, it says, Jesus has been made perfect through the cross. So now he ascends and he's been welcomed into the very presence of God. We stand here well and truly imperfect, don't we? But Christ has been made perfect in every way and so is welcomed into the presence of the Father. Now that first attribute is then followed by our first instruction, which is found in the same verse. And it says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. See, when we are confronted with the reality of our own sins and our own shortcomings, The depths of those sins make us feel as though, um, well, the attacks will come. The attacks of guilt, the attacks of self-condemnation, the attacks of doubt, the attacks that tempt us to turn away from him altogether. But because we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, we can hold firm to our faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of those attacks. For we know that our faith is in the perfection of our high priest, 
rather than in our own imperfections. His acceptance and perfection in the heavenly realms covers over our imperfection here on earth. I wonder how it might be time for you to hold firm to the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. To not let the attacks of guilt or self-condemnation or doubt cause you to turn away from him, but to instead turn towards him to trust in his interceding work on our behalf in the presence of the Father. Now, the second attribute that we see in these verses in verse 15, where it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. In short, Jesus is able to empathize with us in our own weaknesses because he too himself was tempted like us in every way. Have you ever used the phrase, you don't understand what it's like to be mean? Or perhaps you're more discreet than me and you've simply thought those words and not actually articulated. When we perceive perfection in someone else, or we think they don't struggle with the things that I struggle with, we feel like they just don't get what it's like to be us. It makes them seem unrelatable because they'll never really stand in our shoes. They'll never be able to understand what it's like to be me. But the author's point in verse 15 is that Christ's perfection does not make him unrelatable. It does not make him unapproachable or unable to empathize or identify with us. In fact, he's completely able to empathize with us because of his humanity during his time on earth where he was tempted in every way just like us. He faced persecution. He faced hunger and thirst. He faced isolation. He faced the pressure of obedience. He felt fatigue and pain and suffering. Yet in all those things, he was without any sin. But the fact that he was without sin only testifies to his acceptance before God. It doesn't take away from his ability to still empathize with us during the times of our own struggles. When it comes to our sin and shortcomings, Jesus is fully able to empathize and identify with us during our time of weakness. And remember, the church that the author was speaking to, the Hebrew church, was a church that was struggling. They were feeling the heat and the weight of persecution. They were feeling the pressure of what that decision of following Christ really meant and the sacrifice that was associated with it. And so the author is reminding them that Jesus himself gets it. Jesus himself has been there. He might be sitting in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father, but yet he still is present here and now and is able to identify with us during times of our own struggles. Now, the third attribute that you should see on the screen is that he is able, we, because, sorry, instruction that follows this attribute is that we are able to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Now, in the Old Testament, God's throne was represented by the Ark of the Covenant, and it was by definition unapproachable. It was placed in the holiest of holy sections of the tabernacle and then later the temple. There were layers of separation that were placed between it and the people of God. Only the high priest could go in there, and even him could only go in there once a year. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's a well-known narrative about a man who reached out to touch the ark because the oxen that was carrying it stumbled. And as a result of touching the ark, he was immediately struck dead. This is the picture of God's throne that we are given in the Old Testament. It was to be kept separate for our own safety because an unholy people could not be in the presence of a holy God. But yet, because we have a high priest who is perfect in every way, who he himself has been accepted into the presence of the Father and who, despite his perfection, can still empathize with us in our own weaknesses, even though we may feel laid bare and exposed before God, we no longer need to fear the presence of God, but we are instead invited to enter into that same presence with confidence. Not with fear, but with confidence. We no longer need to feel unworthy or excluded from God's presence. We are instead invited to enter into it. Not because we have earned it in any way. Not because we are any less uncovered or laid bare before God, but because our high priest, who knows and understands us inside and out, and through his sacrifice on the cross, he has covered us with his righteousness. That is why God's throne is a throne of grace. Our confidence in Christ gives us confidence in the presence of God. And what happens when we enter into that presence? We're told we receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. What do we need when we feel exposed or inadequate before God? When we feel like the narrow road is not worth the journey? What do we need during our times of struggles? We need the mercy and grace that we find in the presence of God. The truth to remember from these three verses at the end of chapter 4 is that Jesus, our great high priest, enables us to enter into the presence of God with confidence. I wonder what holds us back at times from entering into God's presence, from engaging with him. I think sometimes we can view God as an unapproachable God, a God which doesn't understand us and doesn't understand us in our current struggles, a God which is more likely to strike me down than to invite me into his presence. But although God is absolutely the same God yesterday, today, and forever, Christ, our high priest, has changed everything. For our confidence to enter into that presence is not found in us. It is purely found in him. For he has ascended into the heavenly realms. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He empathizes and identifies with us in our struggles. And he welcomes us into that presence because of what he has achieved on the cross. So having reflected now on the attributes of Jesus, our high priest, in the first 10 verses of chapter 5, the focus switches a little to, on, to be on the role of the Jesus, our high priest. Now, the first one to four verses pick up on the role of the former priesthood. And there are four main roles that we read about in verses one to four. 
The first of those roles is that the high priest was selected from among the people to represent them in matters related to God. The high priest was first and foremost a mediator that stood between God and his people to represent them before God through various offerings and gifts and sacrifices. Now the second role is in verse 2. It says he was to deal gently with the people. And there's two categories of people that are mentioned in that verse. There's the ignorant and those who are going astray. The ignorant being those who don't really know any better for what they're doing, and those who are going astray represent people who are more intentionally going down and making bad choices. But in both of those categories, the high priest was to deal gently with them or to to hold back his anger from them. Whether their sin is unintentional or whether their sin is intentional, because they themselves recognize that they are sinners too. They are also subject to weakness. So they represent them before God, they dealt gently, then this leads on to the third role, which was to offer sacrifices on his own behalf and for the, on behalf of the people. The sacrifices made were for themselves, first and foremost, for they too were sinful, and to offer sacrifices for the people for their own sin. Although Christ was without sin, as we've already read, this former priesthood certainly was not. And the last role we see is in verse 4, that the high priest was called by God. This was, this was always intended to be a God appointment rather than a human appointment. So the, so the previous high priests were selected from among God's people to represent them before God. They dealt gently with the people. They offered sacrifices for their own sins and for the sins of their people. And then lastly, they were called by God to that position. Now, what we see in verse 5 to 10 is how Jesus perfectly fulfilled that role. And the author actually starts in verse 5 and 6 by going in reverse order. He starts with the fact that Jesus didn't take this position on himself, but was instead appointed to that position by God. And to support this, the author uses two Old Testament quotes, both of which are found in the Psalms. Now, the first quote is from Psalm 2, verse 7, where the author quotes God as saying, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now, Psalm 2 points back to the promises that were given to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In that passage, that's where God promises to King David that someone from his line would reign on the throne forever. A promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, who would reign as the king of God's people for all time and who came through the line of David. Christ is being given royal authority in the heavenly realms, which is why he sits down at the right hand of his father. He's not a self-appointed priest. He's the one who God has appointed to reign as king. Now, the second quote that the author uses is from Psalm 110, verse 4, where God is quoted as saying, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll speak a lot about Melchizedek in the coming chapters, so I'm not going to deep dive into that person just yet, except to point out that he was a priest who was ultimately appointed by God because he preceded Aaron and his lines of priests that would follow. But not only was he a priest appointed by God, he's also described as the king of Salem. And so he foreshadows someone who would come, 
who would act as both priest and king. Jesus' appointment by God makes him the perfect high priest. And having established his appointment by God, in verse 7, the author then focuses on his humanity and how his humanity also makes him the perfect high priest. In verse 7, we're told that he offered up prayers and petitions and fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Now, this verse can't help but take you back to the striking scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed out to God that, it, that the cup of his wrath would be taken from him if it was at all possible. And perhaps it can take us to the scene on the cross where Jesus cried out to his father in anguish. And in each of these cases, Jesus was absolutely heard by his father. But the answer wasn't to save him from physical death. It was instead to grant him resurrection life. And Jesus' response, it says in verse 7, was reverent submission to his father God. This is a high priest who felt pain and anguish and suffering, who has had to deal with the challenges of what obedience to that call was going to cost, who tasted and experienced even physical death itself, so he deals gently with us in our own times of need and takes a place of glory and honour which could not have been taken by any priest before him. Jesus' humanity makes him the perfect high priest. And lastly, Jesus, sorry, God, the author points us to Jesus' sacrifice in verses 8 to 10. Now, these verses are interesting because it says, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, many of you will probably react to that verse as I did by saying, well, hang on, if Jesus is God's son, surely he was already obedient. Surely he was already perfect. And yes, he absolutely was obedient, but the author is making the point that he learned obedience and experienced, he experienced the full reality of what that obedience meant through what he suffered on the cross. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 describes it in a different way. It says that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' obedience to God the Father took him to the point of experiencing the full weight and the full cost and the full hurt of that obedience on the cross by becoming death itself and bearing the full weight of God's wrath and judgment on our behalf. He who was without sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But through that obedience, it says, he was made perfect. In other words, he became the perfect and eternally worthy high priest his work was perfectly completed on the cross. The imperfect sacrifices of the former priesthood as they offered sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people, that was replaced 
by a perfect once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And through that sacrifice, it says, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Now, it took a bit of processing in my mind to think, how can Jesus be both the high priest and the sacrifice? But what that truth highlights is the voluntary nature of his sacrifice. The previous high priest offered sacrifice of other things for their own sins and for the sins of the people. But Jesus, our high priest, voluntarily laid himself down on the altar of the cross as the once and for all final sacrifice for his people. And because of that sacrifice, our sin does not need to hold us back anymore from entering into the presence of God. The former priesthood offered sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And through that sacrifice has become the only source of eternal salvation for those who believe in him. And as a result of that faith and belief, follow his example of humble obedience to God. Jesus' appointment made him the perfect high priest. Jesus' humanity made him the perfect high priest. And Jesus' sacrifice made him the perfect high priest. And because he is the perfect high priest for all these reasons, he is the only source of our eternal salvation. That's the key truth that we can draw out here from verse 1 to 10 of chapter 5, that Jesus, our great high priest, is the source of our eternal salvation. So how might God be calling us to respond? Calling us to respond to his work on the cross and the salvation that's been made available to us through him. It might be by turning back to him. And acknowledging once again that he is the only way through which we can be saved. That our salvation does not rest on ourselves. That our salvation is not found through our own imperfections. But that our salvation can only be found through Jesus Christ who is our perfect high priest. Or perhaps God is calling you to look to Christ's example of obedience in response to that salvation. His willingness to become obedient even to death and to then choose to follow that example with all your heart. Even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when the pressure is immense, even when we feel uncovered and exposed before God because we have a high priest who has been there We have a high priest who has experienced it in every way. And we have a high priest who empathizes with us during our own struggles and who empowers us and who desires us to enter into the presence of God to experience his eternal salvation, a salvation that can only be found in him. Jesus is truly our great high priest. He's our high priest who enables us to enter into the presence of God with confidence. And he's our high priest 
who is the source of our eternal salvation. Let's not turn away from God when we feel uncovered and exposed before him, when we're reminded of our own sin, when we're reminded of our shortcomings, when we're feeling discouraged or is that um, the narrow road is not worth the journey, but rather let's turn towards him in those moments for mercy and grace because Jesus is our great and perfect high priest who clothes us in his righteousness and welcomes us into the very presence of God to experience the salvation that can only be found in him. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you and praise you that you sent your son as our great and perfect high priest. Lord, thank you that your presence is not something we need to fear, but is something we can enter into because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And Lord, thank you that our salvation does not rest on, our, on ourselves and our own imperfections, but that it rests alone on the perfect work of Jesus. Lord, give us the strength to hold firm to our faith, to follow his example of obedience wherever that, wherever that road may lead. Lord, we rest in you, we praise you, we thank you that Jesus is both the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice, and because of his perfection, we can enter into your presence in worship and praise and enjoy the eternal salvation that is only found in you. Lord, we thank you for these. In Jesus' name, we lift you up.